Hey everyone, it's Noemi from Misa. We just wanted to address what's happening in Ukraine right now before getting to our interview with Laser Berman. Since 2004, Masa has been at the forefront of bringing Jewish young adults from around the world for long-term immersive programs in Israel. No matter the situation, Masa will do everything in his power to continue our mission. The situation in Ukraine will not hinder us. Our programs continue to remain open for everyone, and we want our listeners to know Masa is here to provide assistance for young Jewish adults to come to Israel. During troubling times such as these, Masa continues to be committed and supportive of young Jewish adults in the global communities, as well as supporting our fellows here in Israel. Welcome to the Israel Conversation by Masa Leadership and Impact Center, the content engine behind Masa Israel Journey. We bring contemporary, challenging, and compelling Israel issues to light in ways that help us stay connected with what's really going on on the ground. I am your host, Michael Unterberg, here as always with co-host... Liel Zahavi Asa. How you doing, Liel? And we have a I'm very... Great. Good. I didn't even wait for an answer. I was so excited about our guest. I apologize. That was Same. very rude. Uh, we have a returning guest. Liel, would you introduce him to discuss uh, events in Ukraine and how it's affecting Israel and the diplomatic challenges it's presenting to Israel? Yeah. Um, so Laser Berman is a diplomatic correspondent at the Times of Israel, um, and he's a returning guest. So welcome back. Thank you. Great to be here. How's it going, Laser? It is going well. I for you for us, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I anticipate uh, busy days ahead, especially today. Now you were you were actually in and and, and it's in the West. We're supposed to change how we pronounce it. Yeah, like we're not supposed to say Kiev anymore. We're supposed to say Kiev. Like Kiev. Hmm. Yes. Uh, so Kiev, K I E V, was the or ru- the Russian way to spell it and pronounce it. So uh, it has become accepted to say Kiev. Is that why? Also, not to say. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a Ukrainian spelling and, and pronunciation. Wow, and also saying that. the Ukraine is also uh, pro-Russian because it insinuates that it's a province and not a real country. So don't say the Ukraine the, you, to Ukrainians. Like etymologically, yeah. Ukraine means something like borderline. So it's the borderline as opposed to the name of a country. Is that the... As far as I understand. I don't speak Russian. It's so funny. <laughs> I don't either. But but I just, just from reading about it. And I, I, I once had... I lived in Cleveland for many years, and I had an electrician come over, big burly guy with a light accent. And I said, oh, you know, did you immigrate from somewhere? He said, yeah, from Russia. I said, oh, what city? He said, Odessa. I said, Odessa, isn't that, a, isn't that a Ukrainian city? And he looked at me, I guess if I was drunk, there weren't tears in his eyes or anything, but, but he was like so happy. He was mm. like, oh, nobody gets the difference. He goes, yes. I'm Ukrainian, not Russian. So this is, and this is whatever, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. Like there is this weird, the tension is there because the tension's been there for a long time. Like it's a relatively modern country, like the Ukraine to Ukraine is a relatively modern shift, no? Sure. So obviously in the Soviet Union, it was one of the, um, you know, it's part of the Soviet Union itself, one of the Soviet Socialist Republics. And... Let's also not forget that Russian culture and the idea of Russian is started in Kiev, the kingdom of Kiev and Rus. So the, the connections culturally, linguistically are there. Um, and there are certainly plenty of people that live within Ukraine that are Ukrainians that, uh, you know, that see themselves more as Russian, that, that speak uh, Russian as their primary language and don't speak Ukrainian. Obviously, that changes the more, the further west you go, yes. the further away you go from the borderland and 
and from uh, from these breakaway republics that we'll probably talk about, then the the Ukrainian identity gets it gets much stronger, and the pro-European identity gets stronger. So wh- while all this is going on, obviously most of the world, Western countries, not only Western countries, also I mean even China was sort of uh, pretty strident in condemning the Russian aggression, which, as we record now on Thursday morning, is pretty much hitting full scale. Israel's being, am am I wrong in describing Israel's diplomatic language as being very delicate? Because it it seems, and this is the perception that we have, and correct us if we're wrong, Israel seems to be not wanting to strongly take one side or the other, but still sort of using the language of the West. Yeah, I think I think you hit the kind of the central points there. So we know that Israel's uh, is a Western-oriented country. You can call it a Western country. Its best friend, closest friend, uh, strategic partner is the United States. The EU. It has you know all sorts of close uh, strategic, economic, cultural relationships with. At the same time, if you think about Western countries, the only Western country that doesn't see Russia as an adversary is Israel. Right now, Russia has some problematic things it does in terms of its activities in the Middle East, and it's done so, you know, since the days of the Soviet Union when we we're even fighting against uh, Soviet pilots over Egypt. But it is a country that um, we have very constructive relationships with. Obviously, the the issue that is kind of most pressing nowadays is the Syrian issue for Israel. So there are Russian troops, not that many, but still a significant Russian presence. In Syria, so Russia is on our northern border, and we have created a deconflicting mechanism to make sure that when Israel strikes uh, Iranian proxies, Iranian forces themselves, Hezbollah arm transfer, transfers in Syria, we are not hitting Russian troops. We're not uh, coming in. We're not getting fired at by Russians. And you know, the reasons are obvious. So that, that's the, the the most important um, and most pressing mechanism, and it works well. And then you see the connections that senior Israeli leaders have with Putin himself and other senior mm-hmm. officials. You had Bibi going there all the time. Uh, Zev Elkin goes, he still goes in, in this coalition as the interpreter. He knows these figures well. And Bennett was there in Sochi and got stuck there for Shabbat. Uh, so there's not other Western countries that have this type of relationship with Russia. I mean, it's particularly odd in that, taking your Syrian example, Russia works very closely with Iran. And so having good relationship with Russia, does that help us sort of keep Iran off our door by, you know, if, if uh, to use a, a sort of gross analogy, is, is there a Russian leash on Iran at all that we're, that our being nice to Russia, we're hoping will hold Iran back? There certainly is a Russian leash on Iran in Syria. No question. The question uh-huh. is how much uh, Israel has influenced that. It seems to be primarily a Russian interest, but I think that you know they talk to us about that. It is in Russia's interest that the Syrian state be reconstitu- reconstituted as a coherent entity under that Assad. can function, that the war ends. Uh, yeah, under Assad, no question. And that uh, their naval base is uh, is not threatened and they don't need to send any any troops to fight or anything like that. They don't need Iran setting up, uh, you know, bases or, or terror cells on Israel's border and absolutely endangering that stability. Uh-huh. So it was Russia that sent very clear messages to Iran: "You better, you know, step back from uh-huh. Israel's border." I forget how many kilometers, but it's forty, sixty, something like that. Um, so th- there is no question that that Russia and Israel have have a joint interest in seeing Iran off of Israel's border. Um, 
And at the same time, there's other tensions between Russia and Iran in Syria in that Iran, the regime has, has a inherent mistrust of, of, the sta- of state militaries, right? Because when they came to power, the Iranian army was very pro-Western. It had Amer- it was, you know, American material. It was just a pro-Western. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, so Iran likes to work with these non-state armed organizations. And, you know, we know Hezbollah, Hamas, and all these proxies in Syria and Iraq, the Houthis, you can say. Um, whereas Russia doesn't like to do that. You know, Russia would rather work with mm-hmm. the Syrian state army and, and rebuild that. So uh, there, there's certainly tension there as well. Now, I didn't answer an earlier question fully in, in terms of what diplomatic language Israel has been using. So mm-hmm. they finally put out a statement yesterday, which the Ukrainians, believe me, were waiting for. And they told me that as well. They told me, you know, Israel knows we're waiting. We just hope they say something similar to what, you know, other Western countries have have said. And it wasn't that similar because they didn't even mention Russia. They uh, Israel expressed concern. Mm-hmm. They expressed a you know, uh, commitment to Ukraine's territorial integrity, but tried to do it in a way that does not antagonize Russia. And that was certainly intentional. Well, can I, I mean, maybe this is a silly question. Why do Ukrainian diplomats care that much about Israel joining the voices? In other words, why don't they just say, look, we get it, Israel. You guys have the headache. Just say something vaguely supportive and we're cool with it. Like, why is it important to them to see Israel backing them? Well, there's certainly more uh, important countries to Ukraine, but I was speaking to the Ukrainian embassy here, so that was relevant, and I was asking about Israel. Yeah, fair point. But, um, yeah, there is certainly uh, importance that, you know, a unique importance that Israel has. Um, Ukraine is trying to transform itself into something of a, you know, a startup nation or a high-tech power. Mm. I believe the number, there's, I think, 30,000 Ukrainian, um, what's called, uh, coders, Mm-hmm. People that code on computers. I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, that that work for Israeli companies. Yeah, that live in Ukraine, right? So, yeah, my th- son-in-law works in high tech. He's been having meetings with how to keep how to keep his Ukrainian colleagues working with him while they're like they were making exactly. plans over the last few weeks of, wow, do you have to move? Do you have to stay? Do you have to? How are we going to keep work going? Exactly, and about I don't know. I want to say two months ago in December, the Ukrainian defense minister was here. And shortly afterward, I reported that the Ukraine's ambassador in Israel had said at an event that uh, he basically hinted that Ukraine would recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital and open a diplomatic office here, not a full embassy, but a official diplomatic branch. Um, and, and that was basically conditioned on Israel upgrading its defense relationship with Ukraine, mm-hmm. selling them different material, which Israel has not done. So there is certainly a lot of importance. And let's also not forget, Israel is always seen as the um, channel to the White House and to the United States and to Congress. So that's also important for, for countries as well. So there's no question that Ukraine wants that type of support, especially as it is upgrading its military since 2014. And Israel, obviously, in terms of drone capabilities, in terms of um, other technologies, um, you know, electronic warfare that, and cyber warfare, that Israel could be very helpful. Mm-hmm. And they're not being as helpful because they're trying to stay somewhat neutral. They're not being as helpful as they could be. Uh, yeah, there's no question about that. Uh, there oh. was reports that Israel had instructed Baltic nations to whom we sell weapons not to sell them again to Ukraine. Oh, wow. Um, 
officials I spoke to said, you know, you have to go check with the defense ministry and it's not our thing, but that's, well, A, it wouldn't surprise me and B, the sense I got is that indeed that is true. Uh-huh. And sources on the other side said that the Ukrainians are, were very upset about that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the fear would be Russian troops would overrun a Ukrainian position, find Israeli weapons and say, hey, Israel, you know, I thought you were a friend and Israel doesn't want that tension with Russia. Is that the, is that why they don't want their weapons resold? Yeah, I don't think you need Russia that scenario, but I think, there. yeah, right. But I think Russia would be very well aware of if, you know, even if they weren't used yet, that Ukraine has, has Russian, has Israeli systems. And uh, yeah, I would imagine that Russia would not be happy if, if its soldiers were under threat because of Israeli systems. Now you were, you were in Kiev like last week, I think I saw in the, in the Times of Israel last week or two weeks ago. Yes. And you were there for uh, a few days. It was days. last week. Yeah. And yeah, I, 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 I remember f- you, I, I sort of, I remember your comments that it was, it felt a little Israeli, like it just sort of that, that everybody knows things are ratcheting up, but people are going to work and people are going to cafes and, and, you know, it's sort of this. Yeah, absolutely. I I wouldn't even say people knew things were ratcheting up because everyone to me, most people said that, that, you know, they're not especially concerned. Uh, They said the West, Western media was hyping things up, especially American media. And certainly life was going on. Uh, as usual, people were in cafes, they were going to work, they seemed to be enjoying nice winter days in, in Kiev, which was not that cold. Um, and, you know, there, they, people said there were, f- there were fewer people on the streets and less traffic, but they mostly attributed that to, to Corona, because mm-hmm. the Omicron wave was, was a little bit behind Israel there. So, um, yeah, as of last week, things, things were pretty normal. Again, I was in Kiev, I wasn't in the east. Right. Right, so right. I wasn't I wasn't in Kharkiv or, or you know places that. Although are much the attacks closer. are coming now from the north, it sounds like from Belarus, at least as of this morning. Yeah. So I don't know, mm-hmm. I don't know what the timeline is to getting to. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if anybody knows, but it's scary. It oh, must be I scary mean, now. I, I I have this weird feeling. You were saying how like the they were saying the West was overstating or 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 even sort of just giving inaccurate reporting. I always wonder if there's a causal relationship. In other words, like does Putin, if they say Putin's going in, like does does that mean Putin now has to, because he has a, a very old way of thinking about things. Does he have to now do it to prove that he's tough or does it now, it, it, will that cause him to say, well, now I won't do it just to prove America wrong and make America look stupid? Like I don't get how, in other words, the way the West was talking about this has to not just be reporting and informational to the world. It has a causal effect on Putin's strategic thinking. And that's a really dangerous game. So I think, yeah, anytime we talk about what Russia is doing, it gets into kind of Putinology and trying uh-huh. to figure out what Putin is thinking, which is, is you know, it's a game anyone can play, but we both don't know. Right. Um, but in terms of your larger point, yeah, no country and no politician says anything just to report, right? right? There's a reason why they say things. I think there was an important deterrent effect that they were going for. They were trying to say, we know what you're trying to do. Look at this intelligence we have, and this is what this is what is going to happen to you if you do carry that out. Um, whether that changed his thinking, we don't know, because we don't know what exactly he's going for, right? It could be, you know, he could stop today and say, okay, I've scared you, now let's talk. And that would be a very effective negotiating tactic. Um, or he might have something bigger in mind. We, we just don't know. But, but certainly the, the desire of the U.S. and the West was um, to talk 
it's kind of tough. They didn't even talk that tough, but threaten sanctions, show that they're united and and bring Putin to some sort of uh, negotiation uh, where where they could find some sort of formula to to defuse the situation. Yeah, I just didn't understand. They, they, they were talking about the, the military action as a fait accompli. And so now, you know, like, oh, we'd be willing to have diplomatic things, but he's basically going to invade within a week. So I don't even, like, that language, I don't know. I don't know how to do it. I'm not a diplomat. Like, I don't know how you, how you, how you fine tune your language so that it is only preventative and not provocative when the goal is to be preventative. Sure. It's right, very, especially when you're trying to talk tough, right? Yeah, and you're trying to send a, send a message. It certainly could. Um, do I think that that caused you know today's military action? No, I don't. Right, uh, Putin is very careful, and this has clearly been a while in the making. Oh, yeah. um, so, but uh, yeah, I, certainly the West seems like has not been able to to take the initiative away from Putin and materially affect anything that's going on. It seems like he has his plan, he has his clock, and mm-hmm. he's moving forward with it very deliberately. Let's not forget that, you know, the recognition this week of the uh, breakaway mm-hmm. republics and even land beyond that, and then openly moving troops in. And um, there was, there was you know, the Russians were accusing the Ukrainians of, of some provocations. And then the next day, End of genocide. we have this larger stuff. Yeah. Oh, they've been doing that for a long time. They they say, and they, and they tell Israelis, and the Russian ambassador told me that, you know, Ukrainian nationalism is neo-Nazis and... And uh, you know, this is something that Israelis and Jews should should be very aware of. And certainly, Russia tries to present themselves like the Soviet Union did as as the defender of minorities and the de- defender of Jews against this this very um, dangerous nationalism in in Eastern Europe. I mean, it's funny that Putin has to or or thinks he has to play that game of of speaking in language as a sop to. I I honestly don't think. I mean, I I don't think it takes Putinology to understand that he doesn't care about those things. Right, he, he he more or less, without going into fine tuning thinking of what's in Putin's head, he he's a gangster. He's not a he's not a uh, he he he's he tactically works around anything to to make any sort of democratic. He doesn't believe in freedom or liberty or human rights. He's he wants power for himself and for his dream Russian state. I, I and maybe it is a little Putinology armchair analysis everyone's talking about this strategically to push back nato i don't i don't think people are emphasizing enough that he feels like land was taken away from what's russian and 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 people in the west because it's been such a quiet i don't know since world war ii we're not used to the what it means to be a country where land was taken away but if you're from a country that feels like its land was stolen you really want it back like i think that's really a big part of it Sure. I, I think, you know, broadly speaking, because again, I can't, I just don't know him or, or how he thinks right now, but from his speeches, there's certainly pain at the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the and the end of the empire and, and what Russia went through after that. And I think, and it seems like he believes that his system in terms of bringing Russia's military back and, and Restoring Russia's place on on the world stage, uh, you know, it depends on him, and 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 he feels like that he's been successful in that, and there are things that Russia deserves as a as a world power, and I think there's no question that that Russia feels threatened by NATO. Mm-hmm. You know, we can say that that's kind of ridiculous, and it's not true, and NATO has no intention of attacking Russia, but there is a sense of threat, and it's a long-standing sense of threat, 
mm-hmm. that you know that NATO is is inherently an anti-Russian uh, military alliance. That they they continue to move closer and closer. Um, right. So the, so NATO's in the Baltics. Um, he right, Putin invaded Georgia in two thousand eight. You know, over mm-hmm. when there was talk of, of of Georgia joining NATO, and there was also talk of Ukraine joining NATO at the same time. So I think that they certainly feel this this threat, but doesn't mean mm-hmm. it's true or not true. Also, Iran feels threatened, right? Mm-hmm. These regimes that are somewhat paranoid do feel threatened, and that uh, is certainly something that that drives a lot of a lot of his actions. And also, like I said, that that sense of pride and and that sense that Russia um, is destined for something bigger than the spot it has been accorded in, the, in recent decades. Yeah, I, I always think that that type of paranoia is partially projection. In other words, they're thinking what they would do on the other side. They would be looking to undermine, and they don't understand the NATO mindset isn't thinking that way. They don't understand that it's really defensive because they don't want to, they don't think, they don't understand that NATO doesn't think that aggressively because they think aggressively. So it's hard for them to understand uh, a purely defensive alliance. But this is all getting us... Ah, I, I, I like, you know what, you offered me Putinology, I like to play those games. But what I really wanted to ask <laughs> you, I mean, Ukraine has, there are many Jews in Ukraine, and, and both sort of become it, 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 something that the Israeli government has to think about. Because you have Israeli citizens in Ukraine, and you have Jews who aren't Israeli citizens, but might, in case, you know, who knows what's going to happen, hopefully things will settle down. But you have many Jews who might consider Aliyah in response to living in a country under, you know, rather than live in Ukraine in a Russian invasion. So how does that affect Israeli policymakers? How, how, how are they taking that into account? So, yeah, there's no question. There's before this, um, you know, the, the recent tensions, there's about 15,000 Israelis in Ukraine. That inc- 15,000? That's mostly dual citizens. 15,000. Yeah. Wow. 50, 15, one five. 15. Yeah. One five. Israelis that's, that's in Ukraine. A huge, yeah. That's a lot of people. It's not so many because if you think about it, there's businessmen and women. Uh-huh. There's uh, the people that the pilgrims and the, the Israeli community around Uman and other Hasidic sites, and then uh-huh. it's mostly it's mostly dual citizens, so people that speak Ukrainian or Russian at home and also have mm-hmm. Israeli citizenship. So the flight that I was on back, which was was Israelis leaving, um, mm-hmm. almost no Hebrew, and most people didn't speak any Hebrew because I tried to talk uh-huh. to people. There was a couple of people that spoke some, but it, you know, it's really a <laughs> Ukrainian Jews. Not uh-huh. even Jews necessarily, right? They might be uh-huh. have open, you know, Christ, signs of Christianity, but but have a, a Jewish grandparent. So, pe- people that are eligible for Aliyah under the law of return is about mm-hmm. two hundred thousand. That's what the uh, embassy told me yesterday, and mm-hmm. that's pretty consistent. No one knows exactly, but it's like that. There's a lot of Jews there. Um, mm-hmm. Most have not, you know, been trying to make Aliyah and are happy, perfectly happy to stay there. And there's very vibrant Jewish life, and it's it's a wonderful thing. Um, but Israel is certainly being very open about the fact that the, the presence of Jews in both countries, by the way, you know, Russia also has a huge Jewish community mm-hmm. in both countries. So that makes Israel's dance even more complex than mm-hmm. it has to do between these countries. It doesn't want to get Jews caught up in it. And it's also been very open about the fact that if it needs to, it's making, it's made, past tense, preparations for land evacuation of Jews on buses um, through Poland, Slovakia, Romania, Moldova, or hungry, so it's just been very open that 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 might be a possibility that that it has to take into account. Why you know, land? Is they're worried that a war could disrupt air travel, or because usually yeah, the skies are closed. 
The skies are closed. As of this morning, the foreign ministry said that the skies are closed, and that was the assumption they're working on all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If skies open up, they also have uh, air evacuation uh, plans, both from Kiev and from Lvov, uh, rescue flights, uh, regular commercial flights, and then if not, you know, they have the, the land evacuation. Um, Lvov is closest to Poland, so it would be basically, that would be the most obvious land border. And, and I, I guess I, I wonder, if, like, how deeply this sort of strategic planning goes. So they're planning land, they're planning possible air, and then are, do they have plans if they need to bring, I mean, you're talking over 200,000 people. Are there plans here in Israel well, what I, to do with, with but they don't, they're not just not expecting big numbers or... Yeah, I don't think anyone thinks that 200,000 people right. are all of a sudden going to going to show up here because people won't want to leave, right. won't be able to, et cetera. And just because someone is eligible somehow for Aliyah doesn't mean they have any sense that, you know, that's what they want to do. Right. Um, you know, most people stay put unless it's, you know, unless it's a real bloodbath. But we saw in 2014, people moved in the country. So there was Jews um, in these eastern provinces. And there's a, there's a rabbi in a community in Kiev that, that, that just relocated from there. Um, so I think the 200,000 is, is, is not going to happen. Getting them out of the country also doesn't mean they're going to Israel. It might be that, the, you know, that they get relocated within Europe temporarily or something like that. But again, these are pretty drastic scenarios in which there's going, Jews are not going to be the only ones leaving. There's going to be, um, you know, quite a humanitarian uh, catastrophe on in, in Europe's hands, you know, starting to move into yeah. Central Europe. Mm-hmm. I, I I mean I know you're there to report on diplomatic issues, but but did you have a sense of of, of Jewish life at all in Kiev as opposed to just you know life in Kiev? Like, did you just sort of I know it's not your beat, but like just culturally, what Jewish life is like, what Jews, what Jewish experience, what what you in Kiev in particular or Ukraine in general? Sure, so I did some Jewish things in Kiev. Um, I was at a synagogue, the Brodsky Synagogue, which is a the second biggest one. Now it's a Chabad-run uh, synagogue, but a beautiful place, and ha- you know has a restaurant in it. And so I was there for for Marv, and I spoke to people there. Um, I was what at language? Other restaurants. Spoke in English and Hebrew. Uh-huh. I don't speak <laughs> Russian or Ukrainian. Yeah, little Yiddish too. Someone was speaking to me. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Uh, you know these pe- these people have grown up there their whole lives. It's just, it's not that. Rare. I guess I'm more I impressed that, that you could do it rather than. The, yeah, I wasn't so surprised. Oh, that I, I don't do it well. I don't do yeah. it well. It's just for fun. And then I spoke to a representative of the Joint Distribution Committee, um, the All Ukraine Charitable Fund. So different kind of Jewish charities. Jewish life there is quite vibrant, hmm. right? So you know, I was speaking to someone who's a member of the Reform Community, and it has a the Reform Rabbi I spoke to, but he wasn't in the country at the time. So there's the range of um, of of Jewish plurality there, pluralism, and um, Chabad is is a very strong presence there, you know. But multiple restaurants. I'm just saying in Kiev, multiple restaurants, multiple different types of synagogues. Um, you know, it, it really is is a vibrant community, and it would truly be a shame if if this got, got disrupted significantly because of this conflict. Were most of them concerned? Did you get the sense? Most of them talking about moving to Israel or not so much? No, not at all. Not at all. You know, <laughs> people said, uh, you came for a war, there is no war. And seemed quite mm-hmm. um, quite calm. And and no one said that they were thinking about moving to Israel in terms of who I talked to, which is a pretty small sample. But the embassy said that uh, last week, the Israeli embassy said that there was no uptick in applications. It was just people that had already started the process 
we're trying to move a little bit quicker just to make make sure it happens. Um, this week they said there was a little bit of an uptick, but it, it seems like we're talking about dozens of people and nothing nothing beyond that. I, I, I don't know why that surprises me so much. I guess it shouldn't, but it, to me it just seems like why? What you know? At least people, I would, I would expect people to be opening up options. I guess they really just don't think this conflict is going to get very heavy or change their lives or disrupt their lives in very meaningful ways. It could be, yeah. Certainly, that's part of it. You know, uh, you know, they lived through other things, and you, I think that the, a, a more powerful driver would be poverty in Ukraine because there really is significant poverty, including among the Jewish community. But if it's where you listen, if it's where you grow up, it's a language right. you speak. You come to Israel; it's not necessarily to a, especially of a certain age. You're not really coming to a very promising future. You're not going to learn Hebrew well. You're going to be kind of shut in your community. It's going to be hard for you to find a job. You're going to be out of place. We understand why people don't want to do that necessarily. Sure. Obviously, if if it's to save lives or or because there's a real promising future, then it would make more sense, and, and that probably will there probably will be an uptick. But uh, it doesn't surprise me at all that that people are not you know, running away from home for good or for, or for a long period of time because there's the start of a conflict. We certainly don't do that in Israel, right? And right. Know, we've all been through some conflicts here and people don't move that much. Yeah, I, I, I assume, because I, I, I'm, I'm surprised that I'm surprised because everything you're saying makes such so much sense that I guess I guess it, it's, it's that thing, like when people come to Israel and they go, oh, you can walk down a street in Jerusalem without being shot. Like in my head... Ukraine is such a scary place, but when you live there, it's really not. Like, it's just, I'm going, my impressions are based on reading, reporting about a conflict, not daily life, which you saw. So for you, it, it makes so much sense. Yeah. And I saw, what I saw was nothing that looked like any conflict, no troops in the streets, no panic. It's a beautiful European city um, with beautiful views and churches and architecture and seemingly very happy people. Um Again, there's biting poverty in Ukraine, which right. which is probably a bigger pro- problem that that affects more people. And you know, conflicts they've been through it in the past, and uh, that that usually, unless it's again, unless it's you know really severe and, and civilians are, are really targets and, and are unable to and really fearing for their own safety and the safety of their families. You know, the fact that something's happening in the east didn't make people flee the country in, in massive numbers. We'll see how far this gets in. And if there's bombing of Kiev, yeah, then people are going to start moving. Mm-hmm. Um, but probably that'll be mostly to neighboring countries like Poland and Hungary um, instead of to Israel. Yeah. I, I mean, look, it's also, this is not like Hitler invading Warsaw and wanting to break and subjugate Poland under his rule. This is, this is Putin like we said earlier trying to reincorporate to the to Russia he wants he wants he would rather this be without conflict and and you know have a keep those churches and beautiful buildings in Kiev as beautiful as it was but if they're i mean you you're you're also reading that there's real preparation for guerrilla warfare that that citizens are preparing and arming to fight back against any russian incursion so on the one hand I guess I get. I don't know that anybody knows really how bad and ugly this can get. There must be subcon. What they told you can't be everything they're thinking. Do you know what I mean? Uh, that, that's always a possibility. That's yeah. always a possibility. But um, listen, a lot of the people I spoke to were very talented and spoke English well and had options all over the world, and they chose to stay because they cared about Ukraine. Right. They, either they cared about the Jewish community, or they cared about the country, or both. So they're there because they want to be there. And you know, no, I, I understand, to, but you're. Not, 
You're quoting them as being kind of blasé about war, and they must be nervous. And today they must I'm be more, really nervous. more nervous this week. Yeah. Yes. Uh, at the time, they, you know, they really didn't show anything like that, and they were very much going along around their lives and said that they talk about other things. Um, you know, it's what they told me. They could, they could have all been lying to me. No, um, not lying. But, but I don't mean. What they no, told me. I don't think they were lying to you. But I think that I think that kind of I think that kind of bravado is a self performance. It's not. I don't think it's a. I don't think they were lying to you or trying to fool you. I think it's the kind of thing uh, we do it here. We talk with a certain amount of bravado to steel ourselves and not really face our subconscious concerns. And I think we also have to keep in mind that for Ukrainians, there's been eight, there's been war for the past eight years. They don't really yeah. see this has stopped, right? In, in 2014, Russia invaded. They took Ukrainian territory. Uh, thousands of people have died. Yeah. There, you know, there's been an ongoing, uh, you know, bloody border. So not even a border, it's in Ukraine. Yeah. So they say, okay, there's, there's been a war. Like what, what's new here? We go about our lives. There's a conflict. This might get worse, less, but it's not something that's, that's on the front of our minds right now. Just like you said, like in Israel, we've been in periods and perhaps our whole existence, you could say we've had conflict somewhere. Yeah. And, and it, it stops being at the front of your mind. Right. Yeah. You can't put it at the front of your mind or you couldn't function. So you put it at the back of your mind and mm -hmm. you mean it. But it's in the back of your mind, I guess, is what I like. It's it's oh, it, it is there, you know. Uh, and and around the world, Jews, diaspora Jews, worried about anti-Semitism. Like, oh, I'm not really worried. In the front of your mind, you can't live with that worry. And so it's it's, I I, I don't know. I, I my heart goes out, obviously, to everyone in Ukraine. Like, it, I just this sucks. But I, I, I obviously, I'm also especially worried about the Jews there. Like. This is this is really a throwback to things that we're not so used to. We've we've gotten spoiled over the last seventy years. This is, I mean, we were talking about Israel's complicated diplomatic. This is sort of unprecedented. There's nothing quite like this for a long, long time. No, am I? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm thinking more. You know, since the '90s, when there was an the expectation that, you know, the the fall. Um, Oh, the end the of the Soviet history, Union, yeah. the Iron Curtain. Yeah, exactly. That that wars, especially in Europe, problem were a thing of the past. Yeah, right. But then, but then we had you know the Balkans and mm -hmm. and fighting there. But that was seen as kind of this you know this weird Yugoslavian breakup mm -hmm. thing. But yeah, now that that we have uh, Russian troops invading, but again, 2014 and 2008 in Georgia, you know, uh, countries that 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 border Russia are nearby. I think we're much more. Uh, keen to to the possibility, and that's uh, it's increasingly become obvious that you know history doesn't end, and Europeans have to fight sometimes too. And war is not something that happens in places that are far away from us culturally, um, and that's probably a, a constant to history. And we shouldn't fool ourselves, and like people did in the nineties. Mm -hmm. Well, I've used you now as a diplomatic correspondent. I've also asked you to be a cultural correspondent. I've asked you to be a Putinologist. I'm, I'm pulling on all, a lot of skills. Now I'm asking you to be my ideological therapist. Do you think that I'm being crazy when things like this happen? In my head, always it goes to, well, this is why Zionism exists. This is you have to have, where, where you know the the world. You cannot assume things will stay stable. 
you have to be ready with a powerful military capability to protect yourself because you never know what's going to happen. And so a strong, independent Israel is not only important for Israelis and here, but for Jews around the world. We need this country to be ready to take on all comers. And I and then I think like what what is selfish like part of me feels guilty that that's my response. So that's why I'm saying like do a little therapy here for me. Do you think I'm being a weirdo when that's my reaction or do you think that's a a mature assessment of understanding of the world? No, I think that's perfectly reasonable and you're not not the only one who says that. Uh there's no question that in order to survive in a world, and you can call it kind of Hobbesian, you know, this, this mm-hmm. cruel world that people try to, or countries, excuse me, act like people and try to just look after their own interests and nothing else. The way to survive is to be um, reliant on yourself by yourself. And let's not forget that Ukraine, you know, gave up nuclear weapons right. after the breakup of the Soviet Union. Uh, that seems like not a great idea to do. Uh, you know, and there were in, international in treaties, Ukraine. Just do it because we want to yeah. lower the risk, and we'll we'll watch your back. You don't have to worry. Yep, yep. So it, you know, I think it's it's very clear, and it became clear to Ukraine after 2014 that they better start investing in their military. And and uh, you know, Europe is not going to roll in to save them again. They're not part of NATO, and Israel understood that very early on, right? Yeah, no one's going to come in to to fight for you. Um, so you have to be able to do it by yourself. It's, it's entirely reasonable. And another Israel connection mm-hmm. is that it seems like Ukraine is going, no matter what happens here, Ukraine uh, is going to be uh, under threat from Russia for the foreseeable future, perhaps mm-hmm. decades, and there's going to be a hot, cold conflict. And if Ukraine wants to build a modern, uh, high-tech society and economy, then it needs to be able to do so under threat of war and with going to war occasionally and be able to attract investors into mm. what many will see as a war zone. Obviously, the model for that is Israel. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot to learn from that in terms of cracking open how we're able to do that, not only you know, just with a small country and, and, and just uh, unleashing creative potential, but doing that while, uh, while fighting wars and while being ready for wars and while spending a lot of money on military hardware and and money that could have gone elsewhere. So um, I think that is also instructive. And I mm. think it's not strange at all to, to look at the Israel parallels because I'm sure Ukrainians are as well. Mm. And the, uh, that's so interesting. I never thought about that in the other direction. Well, Laser, I really appreciate it. I, again, I, I feel like I've been a little, uh, I don't know, call, I, I, I taxed you here. You came on to talk about diplomatic things and I'm just sort of, it's a lot to process and it's, you know, you you, you 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 try to look at history to understand current events, and any parallel that you have is just isn't good. <laughs> like, there's no, there, 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 this is this is really, uh, I don't mean scary in the imminent physical sense, but it's, I, I I don't know what the 21st century is going to bring, because this is really like a, a pre World War II sort of dynamic, and we. We've become very spoiled in the in the post World War II stable world, and that seems to be unraveling. Yeah, it could be. Uh, we don't know. We don't know. This this could be wrapped up in a couple of days, and that's that. Mm-hmm. But I think it should be a reminder that that human nature is is you know what it is, and international politics and relations are what they are, and wars will continue to happen. And uh, that's something that countries need to prepare for unless, unless they want to be taken advantage of and, and be pushed around. 
Um, that's a lesson right there. There's also lessons lessons about the importance of energy security and, and the mm-hmm. advantages that Russia has gained because of its natural gas um, that it has it supplies to Europe and that, mm-hmm. that it's supposed to supply in the future. And there's lessons for Israel there as well. Mm-hmm. That you know, even though our energy minister seems a little bit uh, you know uncertain about how how she feels about natural gas, that's a huge security and diplomatic tool, and we better be exploring that and exploiting that. Um, for our own gain. And I think that's also very instructive, also for the United States. And I'm going to ask you one last question that my students keep asking me, which I have a pretty solid answer to, but I want to know your answer. What are the odds that this is going to uh, lead to World War III? All my students are at, uh, really, usually every, don't, everywhere I teach. I, is this going to be World I, War III? I would say, no, I would say uh, that's very small odds. Yeah. Uh, usually I don't like you know, putting odds on things, but I think uh, there's no appetite for the U.S. to get involved or for NATO to get involved or Europe. Uh, they've been very clear that they're not going to send boys from Oklahoma to die for Ukraine. I, th- I think right. that makes sense. So I and say if, not World War Three. Not World War Three, because if and, and just to make sure I'm getting you correctly, if Western armies aren't looking to send troops into fight for Ukrainian independence, then this is going to be a fight basically between. Russia and Ukraine with aid and diplomatic and economic help for Ukraine coming from the outside. But the conflict is going to be between those forces, basically. Yeah. I mean, yep. odds exactly. Yeah. Yes. Nothing's, nothing's predictable. Exactly. That, that's my expectation. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I've been guiding my students well saying, I don't think you have to worry about World War III. I don't think so. We, You know, look, there's, there's nothing less predictable than once a war starts. Like the events just get immediately... Uh, out of control that people, you know, things, there's all these unintended consequences once troops meet each other on the battlefield. But but still, the, even that being said, the odds are in, infinitesimally small of of Western armies suddenly showing up and this becoming a much broader regional war. Yeah, you, there's just none of the, none of the elements are in place for it, for this to spread to other countries. I just don't see what other countries are going to get involved and Russia's not certainly going to attack Germany or Right. France or anything like that. Just or Poland happen. or, you know, even even the ones, you know, I mean, and this is part of Russia's frustration is like if you go a little bit further, you start bumping into NATO. And that's the, the Baltic countries. It, yeah. The, the, the only conceivable place that this could happen really, I think, is the Baltic countries, which uh, which are right there on the border and, mm-hmm. and which they, Putin is not happy about and that they're in NATO. They're in NATO. So and there's there's U.S. and Western troops in those countries. So. That is the only place where Article Five, which is the, which would you know bring everyone into to common defense, that's the place where that could happen. That would be a World War Three scenario, but I don't. I think Putin recognizes that as well, so he's not. He's doing not interested that. in World War Three. Yeah. Nope. All right. Well, I have to say you've comforted me again. I, I, thanks for the therapy. Uh, I'll wait for your bill for the therapy session. That not only look, Laser, you you not only have. Uh, insight from as a reporter talking about these people but also what i really appreciate is you, you explain it in a way that's very graspable like you, you you know that with all that background it's sometimes you get caught in the you know people sometimes talk like inside baseball and you don't but uh your explanations for me whether in the paper or wherever are very easy to follow so i really appreciate uh what you do and i really really appreciate uh coming on early in the morning to help explain to us and our listeners uh, sort of behind a deeper explanation of the context. Sure. Well, it's not so early anymore, but uh, yeah, uh, yeah, thank you is, for those kind guy, words. Yeah. And I, exactly. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. I've been up and I'll be up and uh, I'm headed to a briefing with Lapid at noon. So 
That's a lot cool. to do today. And and you you yeah. you didn't go on the trip to Greece? No, no. Uh, I should have. I should have. I was too late. But, do you uh, like travel? Other stuff. Do you do. like all the travel? Love it. You do. Wow. Absolutely. Even the even the actual traveling part, or you like being there, like getting on the plane. Like people, some people really like just traveling. I like being places. I hate traveling. When you travel with with senior leaders and senior government officials, uh, all the bad stuff about the airport is is not oh, relevant. Kind of wow. Ushered through the airport very quickly. You get you know put out a gate. You have a charter flight. It is all good. You feel rich for a, for a couple of days. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Yeah. Well, I, I, I may have chosen the wrong career, but thank you for you choosing yours. And we really, uh, again, can't tell you how much we appreciate the time and your work in general. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and thanks, Liel. We don't have to turn off the Zoom, but it's the end of the episode. Bye-bye. Masa Israel Journey is dedicated to shaping a promising future for the young Jewish individual, the global Jewish community, and the connection to the state of Israel. Masa offers life-transforming, long-term opportunities in Israel that allows fellows to create their own future. Check out MasaIsrael.org for more info.